It's Wednesday, April 6, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm Hoover's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcasting these days. Uh, check it out for yourself. Go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab that says publications. Go over to the left side of the screen where it says podcast. There you'll find a whole gamut of things, economics, law, international affairs, culture, you name it. We talk about it here at Hoover. If you want to subscribe to any and all of them, feel free to do so. You can also subscribe to our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast, your inbox once a month. Hoover podcast is one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is Carl Cannon. Carl M. Cannon, actually, is Real Clear Politics Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor of Real Clear Media Group, and he's a regular guest on RCP's The Takeaway Podcast. Carl's also a Hoover Media Fellow. In fact, he's here in Palo Alto this week, so I thought it'd be a good time to grab him when he's not talking to other fellows and talk a bit about the state of the profession in which he works. Carl, thanks for coming on the podcast. Anytime, Bill. So you were flying out here yesterday. I'm not sure if you saw it or not, but uh, Barack Obama is back in the White House. At least he was <laughs> yesterday to celebrate Obamacare. And my gosh, what a happy homecoming that was, not just with Biden's staff, who treated him more like the president than, than the current president. I don't know if you saw the clip where Biden's kind of standing there rather forlornly, where everybody else is flocking to Biden. It was like high school politics, Carl, where the quarterback has everybody around him and the, <laughs> and the captain of the chess team is all by himself. But the press also just kind of in full love of Obama. And I'm just kind of curious from the standpoint of White House press score, why such happiness to see Barack Obama? Well, the, the, the short answer is that the, the White House press corps sort of fell in love with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And apparently, and apparently, even though a lot of the people there were not covering the White House at the time, many of them still are. Our, our Real Clear Politics' own um, White House correspondent took a somewhat different take, though, Bill. He... Oh. Um, he acknowledged that you know Obama seemed to have this you know the star power that you mentioned, the, right? But that the reason Biden could be so gracious and not worry is because he won, he won over not just over Donald Trump but over Barack Obama. Obama not only um, discouraged Joe Biden privately from running for president, mm-hmm. he told him when he hired him he wasn't going to be able to run. Yeah. Um, after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, Biden reconsidered that. He thought, well. Yeah, Someone's got to run, uh, and uh, so he 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 won. He he Biden, you know, Obama wouldn't endorse him in the primaries. Uh, he gave interviews saying that critical of him. This is before Biden ran for president. Right. So Biden, Biden, and Phil Wegman took the opposite tack. He said Biden could afford to be gracious and not mind that anybody fawned over Obama because he, in the end, got the last laugh. He got what he wanted. Good point. It's also interesting with Obama, this nostalgia for the good old days. People tend to forget that Barack Obama kind of hollowed out the Democratic Party. If you look at where that party stood in 2009 versus where it stood in 2017, Carl, it's not a pretty picture. Well, Joe Biden's not going to mention that, though, Bill, because he's facing a midterm election crucible of his own in a few months. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute. Uh, Carl, I don't know if you saw it or not, the Washington Post editorial of April the 3rd, uh, the headline, The Hunter Biden Story is an Opportunity for Reckoning. Um, the Washington Post uh, has kind of a special place in my existence, Carl. Uh, it was the first job I had as a little boy delivering that newspaper. This is back in the prehistoric age when people subscribed to newspapers and actually had them delivered at their home and getting it there and early in the morning was a big deal to them. It was a very valuable lesson in responsibility and, and uh, customer service. Well, uh, Bill, and- I- I, my first newspaper job was, if you're going to count that, was delivering the San Francisco Chronicle. And so I, I hear I was a paper boy myself. Okay, back in a safer San Francisco, I assume. 
<laughs> well, uh, I delivered it in Sa- actually in Sacramento. And to uh-huh. show you, Bill, to show you how much people read newspapers then, the Sa- Sacramento, where I lived when I was going you know, in junior high school delivering the, the Chronicle, mm-hmm. had two vibrant newspapers, the Sacramento Bee and the Sacramento Union. One was right. considered de- Democratic paper, the other considered Republican paper. That was their editorial stances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both made a lot of money. And and uh, then the San Francisco Chronicle, though, I had I had a 90 paper route. It, it sold tens of thousands of copies right. in Sacramento, but and it penetrated San Francisco. So newspapers were king when we were kids, Bill. Yeah, not to get too far off topic here, but when I first moved here to Palo Alto uh, about 22, 23 years ago, there was a real newspaper battle going on here between the Chronicle and the Merck over who was going to dominate the northern end of Silicon Valley. And I'm afraid those days have gone away, Carl. Yeah, well, I worked in the Merck then, and we won, but it was a temporary victory, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. So this Washington Post editorial, Hunter Biden's story is an opportunity for reckoning, Carl. Um, long story short here, what they're talking about is the New York Post uh, reporting a story right before the 2020 election about a laptop belonging to then-candidate Joe Biden's son, Hunter, raising all sorts of questions, the content of it, uh, about Hunter Biden's path to wealth, his, his international uh, business dealings, his father's involvement, and so forth. No other major news outlet ran with it other than Fox News. Twitter blocked the story at one point, suspended the New York Post account for sharing it. Facebook downright the story and its algorithms, which is nerd talk for suppressing the news. Here we are 17 months later, though, Carl in the Washington Post is asking the following, and I quote, what's more compelling than the assorted accusations about the Biden's behavior is this question. Why is confirmation of a story that first serviced in the fall of 2020 emerging only now? And the Post goes on, quote, the lesson learned from 2016 was evidently to err on the side of setting aside questionable material in the heat of a political campaign. The lesson learned from 2020 may well be that there's also a danger of suppressing accurate and relevant stories. Carl, do you really think that there is this kind of serious navel gazing going on in elite newsrooms around America over the over the Hunter Biden story? Well, no, but this is a, this is an interesting this is an interesting development because the New York yeah. Times and the Washington Post have both had these stories, um, you know, leaked to them by sources. They're apparently very serious. Uh, the investigation into Hunter Biden is serious, and these allegations, these things are going to come out. Um, that he took this money from China that, you know, we already know he was on the payroll of Burisma, the Ukrainian oil energy company, even though Hunter Biden has no expertise in energy and doesn't speak Ukrainian. Uh, he was paid all hundreds of thousands of dollars in a clear attempt to influence the vice president, the then vice president. Right. And and so, you know, this stuff's going to come out. And so the Post and Times are now and they're reporting this. And they say, yeah, there, there are these stories. Well, and the New York Post didn't take one and say, wait a minute, that was our story. The story that you suppressed, and and Bill, it wasn't just what social media did, which was actually suppressing the stories, but the mainstream media, aided and abetted by um, uh, several former uh, intelligence committee people, some of whom, like Leon Panetta, certainly ought to know better, you know, put out this thing. This has the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Um, it, it it had the hallmarks of you know Hunter Biden's erratic behavior. Actually, is what it had the hallmarks of leaving a leaving a laptop, you know, in a shop and never picking it up with all kinds of compromising material on it. But the, the, the media not only didn't cover this, it attacked people who did. Uh, and it was, a, you know, they say, the Post said very gingerly, the series of events has prompted allegations of a cover-up or at best a double standard in the treatment of conservative and liberal politicians by mainstream media and social media sites. Well, yeah, yeah no, no kidding, but, but it also, you know, it was more than that. You know, we took sides, we in the media, not, not me personally, and and 
and and this didn't come out until Joe Biden was safely in the White House. It's a it's a very it's a very bad chapter in American journalism. What do you think the Post is getting at, Carl, when it says, "quote opportunity for reckoning"? Um, yeah, I, that's just sort of a term of art these days, Bill. Yeah. I, I think what they mean is, uh, uh, "Come on, fellas, let's not do this again." I mean, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I guess they're saying they won't do it again. But this is the question, Carl. Let's go to 2024, and it's October of that year, and the election is a couple of weeks away, and it's close. And let's say. The New York Post comes out with a bad story about Kamala Harris's stepdaughter, that she's done something untoward in the fashion industry and she's made, you know, sleazy money or something like that. Do you really think the Washington Post and the New York Times will investigate that story? We're we just going to be back in the same position we were in 2020 because the reality is that, as you mentioned, you know, news publications take sides in elections. Well, and, and this has gotten, it, it's been true for a long time, but this was a, this was a tough moment. Uh, the, the, if you put these reporters and editors under sodium pentothal, Bill, they wouldn't claim they were being objective right. when it came to Donald Trump. What they would tell you, if they were really being honest, is they thought it was just too important that that Trump was a singular menace to the democratic way of life and to ordered institutions and to the media itself. You know, he called reporters enemies of the people, which is you know ugly and and language that in many parts, you know, in, in a world where journalists are often killed. Not, not in the United States, is dangerous talk. So I think what they would tell you is that this was, this was something, it was just too important to go by the old rules and that Trump was a, a singular threat. But if you've got a sense of history and you realize those things, first of all, those things are hard to turn off once you've turned them on. Uh, and secondly, Bill, my own view in this is that it wasn't that Trump created broke the journalism model, broke our ethical model for trying to be fair to candidates because he was such a singular menace. I, I think the way the press behaved created Donald Trump and, and made it possible for him to win. You know, for years, if you go, you can go back to um, Mitt Romney, you know, uh, who's a very, you know, everybody agrees he's a good man, but his business practices killed people. He was, right. he, um, Ronald Reagan was not only a warmonger, but a dunce and a racist. George W. Bush was a dunce and racist. Only later did they say he was a warmonger after he actually started a war, which is maybe a fair comment. Um, you know, uh, John McCain is untethered from reality, uh, doesn't have, you know, went insane in a concentration camp. Um, Bob Dole's too mean. You know, all of, what's the variable? What's the constant? The variable is all these names they call Republican candidates. And the constant is this is the Republican nominee for president. By the time Trump comes along, Donald Trump comes along, all of those things arguably apply to him in an objective way. You, you could use the old model of journalism, objective, fair reporting, and make the case that all of those things applied to Donald Trump. But by then, um, swing voters had tuned us out. We had, it was uh, Rush Schrieffer who worked for Romney. So it was the, it's the classic case of the boy who cried wolf. I mean, by the time Trump comes, nobody's listening to the media. And that's why we shouldn't take sides. And that's why people like, you know, Stanford has a communications professor, famous one, Ted Glasser, says we shouldn't be, try to be objective. Uh, he's mentioned, by the way, in the comments of that Washington Post story, one of the first comments. Here's a guy who's, you know, this is what these journalists are being taught in school, these young Ivy League reporters that you see at the White House and, and Stanford, you know, grads, um, you know, advocate for social justice, not objectivity. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that's a, it's obviously a dead end. And it just doesn't doesn't produce the kind of journalism that anybody has, any, that, that most people have trusted. 
Yeah, you know, to me, Carl Trump is a kind of a fascinating dilemma for journalists because on the one hand, the journalists who cover him don't like him for the most part. On the other hand, he's clickbait, he's ratings, he has coverage. He, if you're writing for a major newspaper, you write about him, you get on the front page as opposed to getting buried back on page A5 as you would another candidate. So he is, he's that addiction that you need. Well, this was true in the campaign. You know, CNN basically vaulted him into the top position in the polls by giving him all this airtime. Right. Uh, anytime he called in, he would call them. They'd put him on the air. Mm-hmm. It was I'd never seen anything like it. And, and, they, and, they, and they show the rallies at length also, which they rarely do. You, you sometimes right. get a snippet right. of a rally. They show it, you know, beginning to finish. That's right. And by the time they realized they may have created helped create a Frankenstein, it was too late. I mean, right. because tr- Trump turned out to be a very able politician, which none right. of us knew. He'd never run for anything. Um, once he had the lead, he wasn't going to give it up. Uh, and your, your your broader points to it true as well. I mean, journal. A lot of the people in Washington, you know, where I work, have look. They get people once considered marginal reporters get book deals and TV shows. <laughs> you know, all you all you have to do is be in the resistance. Um, but I don't think those people are cynical. I, I frequently heard that, hear this labeled at Tucker Carlson from the other, on the other side that, that Tucker doesn't believe half the stuff. He's just doing it for ratings. Um, but I don't, I think the problem is actually more invidious than that, Bill. I think these people have been radicalized on both sides and they're actually saying what they believe instead, okay. of, instead of reporting, which is what I still, I'm the last of the bison, Bill, as you know. <laughs> I'd like to get your thoughts on Elon Musk and what he is doing vis-a-vis Twitter, where he now owns a share under 10% of the company's stock, Carl. And I think this has larger ramifications than people realize, because most people don't understand that a lot of people go to Twitter, not just to share their crazy spur-of-the-moment thoughts, but they go there for information. Well, that's right. And I, you know, I, I like to say I don't go to Twitter for information, but Right. If you're on Twitter, you're getting a news. You're getting a news feed in, a, in an old town crier way. I was, I was looking, actually researching something. I was writing a story Sunday night, a week, a week ago Sunday, and uh, some guy tweeted, "I was going to write tomorrow about this, that, some dry economic thing, but I guess I'll be writing about Will Smith and Chris Rock." And I thought, "What the hell is that about?" So this is second. I wasn't watching the Academy Awards. I didn't right. really right. You know, it, but then suddenly, right, uh, it's just, then you have to go find out, well, what is this? And, and you know, with a couple of clicks, you can find out what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, the, the, the future, the delivery systems of news, we're not at the end of something. We're in the middle of this revolution. We don't know where it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the same, you know, these same technological developments that doom newspapers, I mean, they may end up dooming these other companies too, you know. What's it, it doesn't take long to be old. So I real clear politics started in 2000. So we're 22 years old. And I mentioned this to somebody the other day. I said, oh, so you you guys have been around. You're an old <laughs> like we're an old like we're the Philadelphia Gazette or something. Right. Yeah, you're pre iPhone. <laughs> exactly. Great you. Um, your thought on how the pre and media are going to cover Musk in the years ahead. Now that he since he is by going into Twitter, he is now snooping into the world of journalism, but at least the world of media. Well, he he gets he doesn't get great press now, Bill. Right. You know, he's uh, it, it's like Peter Thiel or does he pronounce it Thiel? Peter? Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel. If you're not, you know, if you're not part of the club, you're suspect. Especially if you have dangerous Republican leanings or independent leanings, even maybe that's even worse. But Musk is not someone who can be controlled. He's he's shown he likes he actually enjoys breaking models. 
Yes. He enjoys, yeah, the, the great, he's, he's gone now. Clayton Christensen used to hold up his iPhone at, at Harvard and say, you know, this is a disruptive technology. Well, well, no, and I, I, I was there once when he said that and I thought, well, that, that, yeah, that little thing in his hand has more computing power than existed at NORAD when I was a young reporter. So I, it's going to be disruptive. Exactly. Um, and Elon Musk wants to do, I think he wants to do the social media and slash media, what he did for the car industry. That's my guess. Could be interesting to watch. So Carl, I'm old enough to remember um, back when reporters would go to the Kennedy school after a presidential election. I think they go in December and they were smiling because you were familiar with this. They'd have a conference and they sit around, they talk about the coverage of the last election and they'd always reach the same conclusion. We've got to cover things differently. We spend way too much time looking at polls and studying the horse race. We have to write about policy and what these candidates are talking about. Then sure enough, about two weeks later, Carl, somebody's breathlessly writing about some straw poll in Iowa, New Hampshire, and away we go. Um, is there any way to break out of the coverage of political campaigns, or it's just the way we do things in America. We obsess over the polls: who's up, who's down, who seems hot, who's not. Well, at Real Clear Politics, we, you know, our company, one of its innovations, its special sauce, was po- averaging polls. Right. And yeah. You guys. So you guys take a compendium of polls, and then out of that, you come out the average. So you're not falling prey to the snapshot poll, the quick take poll, the hot take poll. Right. Well, yeah. In, in that sense, we're we're maybe doing the right thing. But in the in the in the sense you're talking about. Are we some, are we victims? You know, are we captors of the horse race poll? Yeah, we are. Yeah. But but look, sometimes those polls tell you something. it's no excuse to not to not write about what's going on. Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about Trump, Donald Trump in 2016. Um, people would say, well, you know, he would there would be a debate and he would do something terrible, and somebody would say, well, you know, um, the voters in New Hampshire will fix this problem. Yes, and, and I I finally asked somebody. I said, okay, well, he's He's, he's leading in New Hampshire. He's running first or second in Iowa. Why would finishing first or second in Iowa make you go down in the polls in New Hampshire? That's not what happens. Right. And, I, and I said, and he's leading in South Carolina big. If he wins New Hampshire, tell me what the mechanism for that he doesn't win in South Carolina. So sometimes paying attention to this process in the polls helps you figure out what's going on. You then need to write about it in a thoughtful way. But it's not, the danger isn't having the information. The danger is letting the information drive all your coverage. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts, Carl, on how the media are going to cover Republicans in 2023 leading into 2024, because you have two stories going on at the same time. There is what does Donald Trump do? And then there's a question of what does life look like the Republican Party with or without Donald Trump? Well, I, I've got, I guess I got more bad news for you, Bill. And I, when I say bad news, I mean, if you're a person like me, who cares about good, solid, objective, and insightful reporting, and I know you are. Um, the early returns, as we say, aren't good. Uh, you may remember a, a couple of years ago when the idea was that Mike Pence might succeed Donald Trump. Right. Suddenly, the New Yorker and these other, then you started seeing these terrific hatchet jobs on Mike Pence. What a, what a terrible person he is. you know. And now the Mike, that Mike, the Mike Pence role is now being played by Ron DeSantis. So. Right. So the it's not just about Trump. And I heard a journalist this weekend at a conference I was in compare Trump, uh, DeSantis unfavorably to Trump, said he was just as bad as Trump, it needed no qualification because there are only mainstream journalists around, and but smart. So another, i.e. apparently the point was more dangerous. So look, I don't think that's, I don't think the press is going to, collectively wise up anytime soon and, and realize what I'm saying is that our unobjective reporting, you know, 
it even hurts the candidates they want it to help sometimes. It, to, people just tune us out. Um, on the other hand, if the Republicans do take over the House, do you think they will? Uh, I'd be shocked if they didn't. Okay. I mean, just just the, the they only need what ten pick up yeah, ten yeah. seats, twelve six, seats at most six, to do six, it. Six, six or seven, and yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And, there are thirty thirty Democrats stepping down, and just you know, there's just, and there's really just kind of nothing pointing to Biden holding. I mean, what's your argument for staying staying the course here? So yeah, let's assume Republicans pick up the House. All right. So what's going to happen then is that the Republicans will immediately be remind swing voters why in previous midterm elections they voted they voted for Democrats. They're going to they're going to do all a, a list of crazy things, including, I suspect, impeach Joe Biden. Right. Uh, and so I, I guess what I'm answering your question this way, 2020, the 2024 campaign will in part be informed by an electorate that's now seeing Republicans act badly. After after it sent them after it tried to re, remind them, you know, Democrats not act badly. And right. so, it, it, I mean, if you take a historic step back, we never had a time in our history, in our nation's history, to my knowledge. Maybe, I mean, let me re- start that over. In at least in a hundred years, we haven't had a situation that demanded either a strong independent movement or a third party in the middle. Mm-hmm. The, the two the two parties they're not just polarized on issues. They are. They're not just polarized on cultural symbols. They are. But they also don't even like to negotiate anymore. They those muscles of atrophy. They don't even seem to know how to problem solve. And so who could do that? I don't know. But if somebody runs like I'm talking about from the middle, right. you might the landscape in 2023 is you won't know what it's like. The Republicans overplay their hand, you get a third candidate. I, I don't know what it's going to be. Um, hopefully that But circle back to what you started with, with the Washington Post thing. Look, that, it's easy to be cynical or to, or to say, well, come on, that's too little, too late. But if the Post, the Washington Post is saying maybe we ought to rethink some of this, that's that's actually a good first step. Yeah, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding, the proof is in your coverage. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the Republicans in the House. So Republicans take over the House, Carl, they control the House Oversight Committee, which becomes, of course, the tormentor of the administration. It's what, it's what Democrats did to, buy, to uh, Trump. It's what Republicans did to, buy, uh, to Obama and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it'll be very interesting, Carl, to see how Republicans control themselves, especially with regard to the first family. I mean, figure it this way, they're kind of, it's almost like burns, degrees of burns. So there's the mildest degree, which would be just focusing on Hunter Biden himself, his finances, just, you know, how he made his money, you know, what kind of conflicts of interest there are, what that boats the administration. Second step, Carl would be going after Biden Incorporated, which would be the son and the president's brother, and then ultimately the question of the president himself. But then the third one, as you mentioned, is impeachment. Just go go right for the nuclear option right away. And, uh, you know, I just it kind of the head the mind just reels at the thought of just going through yet another impeachment drama, especially since it would seem to just have such an obvious dead end, because even if it got through the House on a decidedly partisan vote, it dies in the Senate. That's right. Uh, yeah. And, and if every House uh, is simply going to impeach a president because he's of the other party, that's that's really weakening something that the framers saw as a very important but you know, sort of, it's the Death Star, right? It's something you only pull out. It's when you absolutely need it. Um, well, the, the the thing about the thing about Hunter Biden and Biden Inc. though is actually an important point, Bill. I'm glad you raised it because the original New York Post stories that everybody dismissed as Russian disinformation wasn't just that Hunter Biden was doing weird stuff. Right. It it was that he was traveling on Air Force Two, uh, and he, he was and he was being given introductions to these people mm-hmm. from the vice president of the United States and that 
right. Biden's Biden's uncle will, may have been profiting, and and that I mean this is in the New York Post stories. I can't vouch for this stuff, but mm-hmm. none of it's been disproved. And that there were maybe it sounded like almost kickbacks or a carve out to to the big guy, and yeah. that was defined yeah. as 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 Joe Biden. So I it in a sense though it makes more sense for the Republicans to look at Biden than it just Hunter Biden. If you're going after a president, look, every family has a person in it, like Hunter Biden. Right. Now, maybe, maybe not that extreme or flamboyant, but you know, a guy who doesn't know how to, you know, can't stay between the lines and has addiction problems and other problems. You name it, Biden, you know, Hunter's got it. So maybe not that bad. But we all, people are, are charitable towards Joe Biden. You know, his one remaining son is this guy. He loves him. I think people get that respect and, and would actually defend it. But if it yeah. starts to be that Joe Biden himself was corrupt, well, that's a whole different thing, a more serious thing. And the Republicans are a should be very careful with that. But b that's if there's if they really want to do this, that's where they should go because otherwise it's just about Hunter. And you, could also, you, could also, you could also Carl turn to that classic Washington story. For example, there's an email from Ron Klain, now the president's chief of staff, to Hunter Biden saying we need money for the vice presidential mansion restoration. It's that great line by Willie Brown. They asked Willie Brown, the former California assembly speaker, mayor of San Francisco, why don't you do email? And he said, because the E in email stands for evidence. <laughs> and let's, uh, let's go back to DeSantis for a minute, Carl, in this regard. If you if you assume Trump does not run in 2024, who knows what Trump does, but let's say for the sake of argument, he does not run. Then I could lay out a scenario with Ron DeSantis, which is pretty similar to George W. Bush in 1999 and 20 and, and the year 2000. DeSantis, like Bush, probably will come off a very easy reelection victory in Florida. I, his opponent yet to be decided. Florida has a late uh, August primary, I think, but it might be might be Charlie Crist. Uh, he was just kind of this rather interesting kind of chameleon figure in Florida politics. He was a Republican governor. Uh, then he switched to the Democrats. I think he ran against uh, Rick Scott in the uh, in uh, for Senate and lost that. Now he's a Democratic congressman from, I think, Pinellas uh, County, um, uh, uh, St. Petersburg area, uh, Carl. And he's going to run very hard on progressive politics. And uh, I read a story in Politico the other day where he's quoting uh, Maya Angelou and the idea that everybody needs a hug. Um, be curious to see how far that goes in today's politics or not. But the point I'm getting to here is you could have a, a Bush 2000-like scenario where you have a governor of a large state who comes off a large re-election, and it's pretty clear he's at the front of the pack and the money starts lining up behind him, and there's kind of an almost inevitability question. But you know, I hearken back to 1999 and 2000, Carl, and I don't remember a lot of hit jobs being done on candidate Bush, early in the campaign at least. And I'm curious, Carl, if you think that's a function of how journalism has morphed over the past two decades. Or, or is it just maybe something different and that Bush in 2000 ran very much on sunshine and lollipops and uh, compassionate conservatism, whereas DeSantis is much throws elbows around? Well, there's 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 two things about that, but I'll give you something you, you, you may have known and forgotten. You could win a bar bit on this. There was one really tough takedown of George W. Bush uh, on the issue of the death penalty in Texas. It appeared in a magazine called Talk Magazine. Can you remember the author? Talk. No, I do not. The author was Tucker Carlson. Okay. <laughs> Tucker, Tucker, there was a there was a woman named Carla Faye Baker who had killed was a murderer. She killed one or I think two people, mm-hmm. and she, in in she had a religious conversion prison that most people thought was sincere. She'd become a model prisoner. There was there was a push to commute her sentence mm-hmm. and Bush didn't do it. And he, he must've said, he said this something like to Tucker in a sing-songy voice mimicking 
Carla Faye Baker, something like, oh, I'm a Christian, you know, save my life. And Tucker Carlson was appalled and thought that <clears throat> Bush wasn't quite the person he was being portrayed as and wrote a very tough story about him. But your larger point is right. Um, why, did, why did George W. Bush get favorable treatment and will it happen for Ron DeSantis? Uh, first question is, Bush pretty likable person and he did not fight the culture wars. He, he, um, he, cared, he cared about education, fought the teachers unions, but uh, on an issue that they purport to care about, which is educating black and Mexican American kids. Right. And so he, he was on the right side of the issue on the wrong, on their, you know, the wrong right side, you know, he's on the Lord's side, but on the wrong side in terms of tactics and strategies. Mm -hmm. But, and he, but he, and he made it plain, he wasn't gonna um, litigate the sex issues of the Clinton. Um, presidency, and he did. He, he ran, a, in other words, he ran a clean campaign and mm -hmm. a, above board, honorable campaign, and he was respectful towards Gore. Gore, Al Gore didn't always reciprocate, but so Bush didn't make himself an easy target. Your point, well, Ron, Ron DeSantis, look, Ron DeSantis has a different temperament, so right. a, a, that's not going to happen, and B, the journalism change anyway. It didn't matter. It wouldn't matter if he was exactly like Bush. He's going to mm -hmm. be. He's going to get blistering coverage. Right. As we see from Don't Say Gay, for example. Yeah. I, I is, it, is, it, is that, Carl, is that, is that proper for media to put Don't Say Gay in the headline when gay does not appear in the bill? I mean, the I think I think the formal title is Parental Rights and Education for the bill. It's not Don't Say Gay, but yet Don't Say Gay is the is the, what goes in the headlines. Well, some brilliant, uh, I imagine, Gen Z Democratic and, you know, little young aide in the bowels of the DNC headquarters or the teachers union came up with that. And it's, right. it's, it's very effective rhetoric, but it's not, it's propaganda. It's not, and no. And the media, the media has not, but this is like that. The media has not distinguished itself on this issue. It reminds me of the, of the knee jerk coverage of the Florida, excuse me, of the Georgia election law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Coca-Cola and Disney, these companies can do what they want. The MLB, Major League Baseball switched the all-star game to um, Colorado, Atlanta. which had equally, if not more stringent voting laws, it, which had, which it, it had the new law in Georgia was more expansive than the current law in Colorado. That's yeah. election experts will tell you that. So it was just performance art, you know, and you're going to see a lot of, you'll see a lot more of that, but your question, of course, of course, that's not a legitimate headline. I mean, yeah. you put it in quotes, I guess you can do that, but, but here's the thing about that bill. I, I don't think, the Democrats are doing themselves any favors with these elections coming up, Bill. Um, the Morning Consul did a poll of Florida primary voters, Democratic primary voters. So think of this, you're in Florida, you're doing, this is a state law in Florida on the verge of DeSantis signing this thing into law. And the Democratic Party is more liberal than the electorate. As we know, primary voters are more liberal then the Democratic Party, just as in the Republican Party, primary voters are more conservative than the general Republican voter. And by 58% of them support this bill. They think this is, so, so the, the, you know, the Disney executives in Los Angeles and the teachers union the officials in Washington and you know, the people calling the shots on this bill are not where the voters are, even in, even in the Democratic Party. So this is not a winning issue for them. And, you know, if Biden, I, I if Biden were, you know, the Joe Biden of 20 years ago, I mean, he, look, he was a good, he was a good Paul. And I think maybe he's lost his fastball. He let these guys talk him into having March 31st be, um, 
you know, I trans ICU day or something. I forget what it was called, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, the old the old Biden would have said, look, on the last day of Women's History Month, while the country's torn apart over this whole issue of trans women athletes and competing against male athletes in sports. Yeah. Look, that's just not where, that's not what I want to do. Give me something on, give me something that day that I can support Women's History Month. And just, you know, the, these cultural symbols are, are and, and it's true in the Republican Party, but, but the, the, the ideologues are, are, are the tail that's wagging the dog in both political parties. And right now the Democrats have gotten pretty far out over their skis in some of these social issues in terms of a general election electorate. I hope you take a little time and look around our little blue bubble while you're out here in Palo Alto, Carl, because I, I wrote a piece for Hoover that will run tomorrow. Um, and it just looks at 2024 and it looks at the Disney dust up. And what you noticed was that DeSantis obviously caught all kinds of hell from Disney and, you know, the media over this and Gavin Newsom just did not miss an opportunity to jump in as well and pound on him. And there's an easy way to look at 2024 if it's DeSantis on one side. Uh, Gavin Newsom may or may not run. I'd be surprised. I'd like to get your thoughts on Kamala in a second, by the way. But it's very easy to look at that election as a referendum on Florida versus California, <laughs> especially when it comes to a lot of culture and wokeness between COVID and Disney and education and just kind of managing of the two states. And Newsom talks about the California way. It seems that DeSantis is running on the Florida way. And you know, voters will have to decide which one they want to go with. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a good way to think about this. And and I look, Gavin Newsom would be in my eyes, in my in my thinking, a formidable general election candidate, mm -hmm. and even and even a very a, a viable primary candidate in the Democratic Party. He, you know, he would, when he was mayor of San Francisco, he married all these couples, and he did so after attending the State of the Union address. And George W. Bush repeated this, this can't, uh, you know, I believe marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, it seems like a hundred years ago, it wasn't, it was you know, George Bush's presidency. Um, and I once, I once told Bush at an event we were in, I, I asked him a long question about gay marriage based on Gavin Newsom. And he hated long questions. And it was very sympathetic to Gavin, very sympathetic to gay marriage. My question was, and Bush later told me, at an event just decided, he said, hey, not, and he just blew the question off. But he said, nice try on that gay question. I said, well, Mr. President, you know, your answer, it's been marriage to a man and a woman can't be the answer because it's the question. Right. And he said, Canada, I didn't say I was going to debate it with you. I just said, nice try. But anyway, back to Gavin, he, look, he, he did this. And the California Supreme Court said that he got, he'd exceeded his powers. Right. And then there was a referendum in California, it didn't pass, but now it's the law of the land everywhere. And nobody even talks about it. It's just, it is. Uh, to use that, the Democrats' favorite phrase, settled law. And right. it also and, shows the it shows the long arc of politics in America, Carl, because Newsom does this. And in 2004, this becomes a huge issue in Ohio. Republicans seizing the opportunity, run a ballot initiative, and the thing passes handsomely. And it kind of carries George W. Bush along with it. And if you talk to John Kerry's campaign people, they will to this day wish that Gavin Newsom would burn in hell over starting that fire in California. <laughs> But Gavin was on another phrase Democrats like to use. He was on the right side of history. And, and my point here is that, um, look, I don't know how he, if Joe Biden decides not to run again because he'll mm -hmm. be, you know, almost you know, 81 when he has to make that decision. Right. And, and it's, it seems that he might not to me. He might. He might. I don't know. But if, but if he did, um, the question is, would you have an open primary or would, were, the, were the establishment get behind Kamala Harris? Well, 
if Joe Biden's still in the low 40s in the job approval rating or lower and the House is in Republican hands and, you know, there's no energy left in the administration, it's harder for Harris to make her case that this is this belongs to her. It's just it's it's and it's and, and she's not polling any better than he is. But I, I don't I don't think Gavin Newsom would challenge her. But if she if there was if she you know she decided she'd rather be in the Supreme Court or she or if there, if there's some way in which he didn't I think he'd like to run, but I don't I don't think challenging her is something he'd really like to do. I don't think so either, Carl. It's very it's more complicated than people realize. First of all, they have a lot of roots in San Francisco. They share consultants, they share a lot of political DNA, a lot of donors. Uh, there's just the sheer optics of him trying to take out a black woman, which in democratic circles would not be pretty. Uh, also, Newsom could find himself kind of outwoked between Kamala and Pete Buttigieg if he decides to get into this as well. If he leaves the administration, which I'm willing to bet you he will uh, between now and 2024 and he runs. And so Newsom getting back to the arc of history would be running against a, uh, someone who would seek to be America's first black woman president versus somebody who seeks to be the country's first openly gay president. And so if you're <laughs> Gavin Newsom, even though you're incredibly futuristic and progressive on a lot of topics, ways it thrills the Democratic base, you might have a hard time getting around that. But let's let's talk about Kamala for a second here, uh, Carl. So she's lost about a dozen staffers now. Um, she just doesn't handle events very well. Um, it would be very easy to be open season on her in the media. Will the media turn on her at some point? Well, no, they, so far they've been defending her, but you know, the she doesn't poll well. And this is not a new development. You know, she didn't she didn't make it to the starting gate last time the Democratic presidential race, let alone the finish line. You know, she, no, she, no, she was smart. She got out in December, so she didn't go through the embarrassment of the first three votes. Well, but but smart, maybe, but it, it was, you know, African-American voters did not, right. did not rally to her. Asian-American voters, she's, you know, she's half, half black and half Asian, and she didn't get either constituency rallying to her. She, right. She's not, for some reason, hasn't caught on. And when she goes to these events and, you know, the conservatives will get some snippet of her laughing wildly or you know, saying something circular. Look, all vice presidents can sound dumb at times. They're sent out to events that nobody, because Lincoln would have trouble carrying, you know, but right. but there's two things that happen. First of all, she can grow in this office. But the, yeah. second, but the second thing is the staff thing that you mentioned is key because within the Democratic, within the Democratic Party circles among the activists and donors, she, her reputation is as a person who who you know won't read the briefing papers and won't learn the material, and then yells at the staffers when she is is made to look bad. That's not a great that's not a great image to have. Amy Klobuchar on paper was the right candidate for the Democrats last time. She didn't win. She didn't right. win because she had some of these issues. Um, male male reporters are hesitant to write about them because they're called sexist if they do. Um, but but at some point, and, and, and maybe these are, you know, maybe these are personality quirks, not character flaws. That's what we have to find out about Kamala Harris. And she's got about, I think she's got a, another, another year herself to move, because if they're personality quirks, people don't mind. If they're character flaws, you have a problem. And I, I think that's what, that's what we're looking at there. But if I had the, if, if we were driving up to Vegas to make a bet, Bill, <laughs> I'd still say she's the favorite to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. In 2024, that's where I would bet. Well, history points you in that direction. I mean, Al Gore, Walter Mondale, um, it's a pretty good list of vice presidents, you know, current and former, who got their party's nomination. Because in theory, you know, you're close to the president. You've you know, collected a lot of favors from people by raising money. You've had a lot of time to go out in the hustings. So it's enviable if she handles her job right. But that's kind of the if here, if she handles her job right. Right. 
but, but look, here's the thing. Did, you know, Barack Obama was not experienced in any way that we would have considered him to be presidential timber previously. He'd never, right. never been in the military. He'd never, he'd never run, he'd never run a shoe store. I mean, he'd never had executive experience of any kind. He'd been in the Senate for an hour or two before he was running for president. He never did anything in the Senate other than kill immigration reform. <laughs> he just wasn't a distinguished senator. He was a charismatic guy who, who's, who fit the moment. Right. Um, and, but you, they're not gonna be able to say that about Kamala Harris. If you're vice president, that's the best experience there is. She is right there. And so, you know, she'll have, she'll demographically check all the boxes in the Democratic Party. She's experienced. I mean, only, you know, only a real hard, hard ass would say she isn't experienced after this. And she'll have the resume to run. And the question then, can she get voters, you know, can she, can she stir in voters some affection and loyalty? Give us an update on Lou Cannon. How is he enjoying retirement? He, he wrote his or last- your, Or can your father actually retire? You no, know, he wrote his last column. Uh, a few months ago, he's 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 turning 89 this year, mm-hmm. and he's now writing his memoirs, which I'm editing. I edited a chapter last night on the plane uh, out out here, Bill, and they okay. they require very little editing. And you know, he covered Reagan all this all this time, but the book covers his childhood and how he went in the news business and the early politicians he covered: Phil Burton, who you remember, and Pete Wilson, and all right. kinds of all, Hubert Humphrey, all kinds of guys. Are there Lou Cannons still in the National Press Corps? Now, ask this because your dad's biography, Carl, uh, reads he went to what, Nevada, Reno, I think. Uh, did he go to SF State as well? My father attended the University of Reno, the University of Nevada, right? right? Mm-hmm. And then transferred to San Francisco State, lost credits in the transfer, which uh, made the U.S. Army notice that he wasn't clear because some of the credits in transfer, he didn't have enough uh, requisite taking enough semester hours. He was working full time and he was right. drafted in the United States Army. Uh, he never went back to college, and, and, which means to say he never finished college. Right. So not only does Luke not have an Ivy League degree, he doesn't have a degree. And, and you know, so in the way, but the way he came up was the whole way you came up. You know, he worked in these small papers, the Merced Sun Star, the Contra Costa Times, right. uh, the Mercury News copy desk and then the night manager then sent to Sacramento where he covered Reagan as governor then the Washington the old Ritter Bureau and then the Washington Post hires him. Um, my own pedigree is like that I oh I went to J school but I went to the University of Colorado not Harvard you know small town newspaper police courts you know and then that's how that was you know the Washington Bureau regional reporter that's how it worked in those days and you came up and you learned all this stuff now these Kids, you know, they hang out a shingle, they do a podcast, suddenly they're, you know, they're White House correspondents and they never cover a fire. But um, I think I think you and I had a conversation about your education at a Stanford baseball game a couple of years ago. We were sitting out there and it's about six o'clock at night and the sun was slowly going down. I was delightfully comfortable. And you expressed, I think, a little regret about maybe not going to Stanford. Well, I got accepted here and they wanted me. There was some unfinished part of the resume. They led me to believe if I would finish this part it waitlisted me until I did it. But I, I proved that the de- admissions department makes mistakes by not completing the, <laughs> they should never accept me. I was too dumb. I was too dumb to go here. So anyway, look, I had yeah. a great time in Colorado. I learned to fly fish and ski and I rode motorcycles at Boulder Canyon and worked, went into J school, worked for newspapers in Colorado, had some wonderful college professors, guys who had real world experience in journalism and, when I left school, I, I got all my, I 
put out all these job applications before I left school and I didn't ever want to go to grad school and I couldn't wait. To, I know I've been going to school since I was five, like all of us, I was ready to get out and work. But you know what? I gravitate back to these colleges. I've come to Hoover many times. I did that. I, I, I did that fellowship at the Institute of Politics at Harvard. And, you know, I reverse snobbery is as bad as snobbery. So I, I just try to be accepting of everyone, <laughs> including right. myself, for being too dumb to go to Stanford. Right. So getting back to your example and your dad's in the profession, uh, you, know, you raised the point I wanted to get to, which is that there are a lot of men and women bouncing around Washington these days and they went to Ivy's or elite universities, and they move straight to Washington and get got right involved in journalism and rather opinionated journalism, I'd say, between coverage. And they're tweeting. And that's one thing that surprises me, how many reporters actually are just show blatant opinions in their tweets. They're not neutral in their tweets at all. They really show their cards in that regard. Do you think we're going to see a swing in the other direction at some point, Carl, where newspapers, I remember, I think when Lynn Downey ran the Washington Post, he was an Ohio State guy. And so he was famously interested in trying to hire people from the Midwest. Do you, do you think major news organizations are going to look outside the Beltway or this is just the new era of journalism where it's going to be kind of elite kids going straight to the elite, the elite media outlets. I was wondering about this the other day, Bill. I was interviewing an intern who told me that she, uh, who wanted to intern at Real Clear Politics for the summer. Mm-hmm. And she worked on the college newspaper. I won't say the college, but it was here in California. <laughs> and she says, yeah, I'm, I've started on the opinion section. So I'm, I'm writing editorials. So literally before she's even covered the news on a college paper, she's writing opinion. And the, the, the old model was that you cover, you cover these events, you learn how to be a reporter, you learn how to get both sides of a story. And, and, so, and, then, and then when you're a mature person, and then you go to the next step in journalism, which is weighing both sides of the story, but then coming up with a, mm-hmm. with, with a solution. I mean, I'll give you an example. So I, one of the first issues I declared my own opinion on was capital punishment. It was opposition to capital punishment. But that was informed, that opinion was formed by years of covering courts and covering cases, four of them, I, the, in which the people were either accused or convicted of capital murder who were completely innocent. And you were so discussing I, this as columnist. Well, no, I wrote these stories as a right. re- reporter, but then later I stepped out, I wrote a magazine article, it was actually for National Review, uh, which is a conservative publication. And I made the I said the conservatives case against the chair. I didn't say I was a conservative. I, I, right. I'm not. But I, I and the, the, the case in, in a nutshell is a long article is, is that if you think government is fallible, if you if your ideology is that a private traps collection is more efficient than a public works, then why would you? But in this one area, putting people to death, mm-hmm. you have this infinite and unlimited faith in government. That was, and George, it was George Bush was coming along. I wrote that in the context of his first run presidency. And I, right. I thought, man, it's not, it's not good conservative thinking to think that the courts can never make a mistake. And then if you agree they can make mistakes, then you have to weigh the moral issue. Knowing that a certain percentage, even if it's a tiny percentage of people mm-hmm. accused of murder and being convicted of murder and executed, is that acceptable for democracy to kill innocent people even if it's a tiny, tiny number? And I made the argument that it wasn't. So I was still a reporter then. I wasn't, but I, you know, and I gradually, but I did it very gradually. I went from reporter to essayist. I read some magazine articles and then I ended up writing some columns. And, but, but if you, if you're a columnist who you come to some judgments about the world from your reporting and then you write reported columns, I think they carry more weight than, than what you see these columns, which is you, there's certain bylines of people 
Hill, Washington, California Journalism too. You see their name, you already know what side the issue on. You don't have to read their column. Right. Then the head, then the headline will say, uh, you know, Republicans still suck, and you say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, or some version of that, right? So right. that's not very. It's not informative. It's not enlightening. It doesn't contribute much to the political discourse, and it comes from people too many times who came became columnists too early in their careers. They they didn't stay reporters long enough. They, you know, the the great compelling issues. Usually the great issues we fight over have compelling competing narratives to them. And the ones that don't, and gay marriage is a good example. That thing went from being in 2004, a controversial thing when the Hawaii Supreme Court weighed in and said, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe the state doesn't really have the right to tell gays they can't marry. The, the court was a little, they weren't didactic about it, but they raised the issue. And then a year later, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said the same thing, sent it back to the state legislature and said, no, craft a statute that'll pass the Massachusetts state constitution and it has to allow for gay marriage that was a very small minority position then it's it's almost it's hard to find opposition to it now and there and this was a, it was partly a generational thing the millennials they didn't even get the question you were asking them right. should there be gamer and so and, and, but the reason this happened so fast is there wasn't a compelling argument on the other side mm-hmm. but most issues there are compelling arguments on both sides and if you have a generation of journalists who don't understand that don't see it don't have the skills to go out and find out the arguments on the side, which which they don't automatically agree, uh, you got a pro- you got a problem. You're, you, you, you're filling your newspaper and your and your airwaves and your podcast and your and your Twitter feed with propaganda, not reporting, not journalism. So to me, I, I'm all, I'm not quite an absolutist because I'm not an absolutist about anything, Bill. But the phrase liberal journalist and conservative journalist is almost an oxymoron in my mind. I, I think we should, you know, if you're going to be a journalist, you, you need to actually have a little bit of room in your mind and your heart for the other side. I'm going to wrap here in a couple of minutes, Carl, but I just want to get a quick uh, take from you on uh, the coverage of Leah Thomas. Well, <laughs> it's, it's been, it's come under two categories, a adoring or B non-existent. Mm. And this, there should be a C there oppositional, but you're seeing, you're not seeing much of that. And mm. again, the, what you are seeing is in the conservative press only. And so, you know, but, but, Look, this this is this is actually an example of what I'm talking about. This is an issue with powerful arguments on both sides. The arguments against allowing um, trans athletes who've transitioned from male to female, right? Um, against allowing them to compete against females is that the male, and it's easily proven. I mean, Leah Thomas was a mediocre college male swimmer, mm-hmm. champion female swimmer and this you'd right. see this in track and field weightlifting boxing all kinds of sport not every sport um not equestrian sports not, no but you know take take the eighth ninth and tenth guys on the kansas basketball team and put them on a women's basketball team and watch what happens well but but it's, I, it's but biological, I, but I, it's a biological advantage but i can actually prove it with with track and field uh, uh, there was a the one the woman who represents the united states in the 1500 mm-hmm. there would be her time would be there would be three or four high school milers in the country every year, right. more half dozen right. who could beat it. So, um, so that, but, but the other side of it is if these people are being who they, they really are and if they're sincere and, and there's not conservatives tend to think some of this is hyped and, and maybe some of it is, but let's just stipulate that in Leah Thomas case, it obviously seems sincere. These people really are now who they want to be. They're women. And, but there's then they were always athletes and they still want to be athletes 
that's not an easy thing to say they can't compete. So I just, to me, that's an issue that should be covered. I don't want to sound trite here, Bill, or from another century, but it should be covered from a place of love. It should be by journalists. It should be covered with a sense of empathy for both the female athletes who are getting the short end of the stick and the trans athletes who are in this world where they don't know where they want to be the best they can be. And so I don't have an easy answer to it. I do, I do the point you raise is how it's being covered. And I don't think it's being covered. I think it's being covered in a one-sided manner. Yeah. My take, Carl, is it was covered one-sided. It was covered through very much a civil rights lens and that she has a right to do this. And how dare you take away this right where she is ultimately expressing herself. Well, yeah. that, I think that's a compelling argument, but it's yeah. one, it's one, it's but it's one, one facet of a complicated story. Right. Okay. Final question for you, my friend, um, talk a bit about what RCP is doing in this election year. Well, we've got our, we've got our reporters. We've got, um, our, we're doing, we've got the polls. We're always starting, we're going to start crunching the polls soon. We've got the mm-hmm. polls on the, on the congressional races already up. Right. Um, we've started our own polling unit, which is, which is not doing horse race polls for the specific reason that we don't want it to interfere with the real poll average. We want to keep that thing's the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have John De La Volpe, who is the, uh, he was a pollster at Harvard with the Institute of Politics poll. He's actually polled some for Joe Biden and he's done a poll and he's separated uh, the electorate by their answers and to a series of complicated questions. Uh, and he used the type of polling that they use it, that uh, Doug Rivers does at UGov, which originated out here, right. um, which is these, pa- these online panels. It's an expensive way to do it, but it's a, you can go in depth. And, you know, we got, so we got these five tribes and uh, we've just come out with a new poll on that. One of them is, you know, woke Democrats is the far, and then the mega Republicans, by the way, they're the two most pessimistic tribes about America, <laughs> the left, the far left and the far right. They, they really pissed at America, both of them. They're, just both, they're both concerned the country's going to hell in a handbasket, yeah, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, and my way of thinking, they're probably both helping that happen, but they don't see it that way. <laughs> and then you have the mainstream Democrats and then mainstream Republicans, and then a group in the middle that voted for Joe Biden uh, last time, but is, that's where all the action is this time. But one important thing, um, since we did in two years, the mainstream Republican group has doubled in size. It's the only group that came. It's all the others have lost a little bit. It's gone from about 12 and a half percent to about 27 percent. It's more than double in size. And 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 this begins to show you a possible post Donald Trump Republican Party. It looks like it looks like Glenn Youngkin. It looks like a, a party that doesn't go around trashing Trump, but doesn't share doesn't not only doesn't share his stylistic right. <laughs> unique stylistic manners, boasting, calling people names, boasting about never having read a book, that kind of thing. But these these mainstream Republicans are very much more in favor of legal immigration, not illegal immigration, legal immigration. The mega people don't even want legal immigration, you understand. And the woke Democrats, of course, want open borders. But this group of mainstream Republicans have, in terms of their values and view of America, more in common with the, the Democratic establishment than they do with mega mega Republicans on some of these important issues. So we're going to be tracking those people and see where, see where they go. Good stuff. I look forward to reading it. Yeah. And uh, we've also got a new book publishing uh, outfit, book Bill. So if you uh, come up with a book, you give me a call. <laughs> that well, my friend, uh, Carl Cannon, I appreciate the time today. I hope you enjoy your time out here in sunny California. Bill, the weather's perfect, and you and I usually go to a baseball game when I'm out here. I'm sorry that uh, we don't get to do that this time, but uh, it means I'll have to come back. 
Uh, you missed a very forlorn Stanford game last night, eight to one uh, for St. Mary's over Stanford. Not one of Stanford's better nights, but uh, hey, quick question for you. Um, what are you watching on MLB this year? Well, uh, I know I know you're a long struggling Nets fan. Yeah, well, they, they won it and then they broke. Oh, they did win it, but it's yeah, they're they kind of they're in a tough division all of a sudden. Uh, I have to tell you, though, last year, Bill, all those giant Dodger games I watched, it was like going back to my childhood. I mean, I just, you know, I kept looking for Willie McCovey to come out of the on deck circle, and he never did. But they did pretty well. The Giants, they had a hell of a team. So I think I'll be pulling for them again this summer. Sounds good. Carl Cannon, appreciate the time. It's my pleasure, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Carl Cannon, brave man than he is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Carl Cannon. Cannon, as spelled as you might expect, C-A-N-N-O-N. Real Clear Politics, also on Twitter. Its handle is at Real Clear News. I mentioned our website beginning of the podcast. That is Hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It delivers the best work of Hoover's fellowship to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, talking California with my colleague, Leo Hanian. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.